It's uh, Super Bowl Sunday today, and uh, according to Facebook, you're being encouraged to have the same zeal as the uh, fans at the Super Bowl, and so I've been instructed that if I make a point, I will get Gatorade poured on my head. So I want you to know, Dave Workman, if you stand up, I'm out of here. (laughs) We've been in the book of Amos now for several weeks, and this morning our passage is Amos chapter 6. If you have a pew Bible in front of you, the page is 1,427. As you turn there, let me tell you a story. In his book, Flight 232, A Story of Disaster and Survival... Lawrence Gonzalez tells the story of a flight that crashed some months before Flight 232. It was United Airlines Flight 173. On December 28, 1978, United Flight 173 was flying from New York to Portland, Oregon, when it went down in a wooded suburb six miles from the airport. The plane had a malfunction of the landing gear on approach, So the captain began circling the area to make sure that the gear was down. Preoccupied with his landing gear, the captain, 42, and a veteran, both of military aviation as well as general aviation, ignored the crew's warnings that fuel was low. It was only when the engines began to sputter and stall out that the captain understood his mistake. The plane crashed, killing 10 passengers and seriously wounding 23. The captain was so focused on what he thought was the problem, getting the landing gear down. And as the investigation into the crash wrapped up, they determined that the culture of military aviation that he and his co-pilot and several of the other people in their airline had been part of had contributed to this crash. You see, it was a time when in the military the pilot of an aircraft was the end-all, be-all. And if you were a co-pilot or if you were someone on the air crew, it was your job when in flight to be quiet and to listen to what the pilot said. He had the ultimate say. But on flight 173, the pilot thought that he knew what the problem was. He thought he had the answer. And he ignored all of the warning signs that its crew had given to him. And it cost the life of ten human beings. In our lives, what are the warning signs that we are overlooking? What is it that has so captured us to make us think that we know what the answer is? In our own pride, we think that we can solve the problem. And the problem is actually something radically different. In Amos chapter 6, God gives insight into this through his prophet Amos, as he speaks to the nations of Israel and Judah. Would you go with me now to God's holy word, Amos chapter 6, 
verse 1. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion, and to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria, you notable men of the foremost nation, to whom the people of Israel come. Go to Kalna and look at it. Go from there to Great Hamath, and then go down to Gath and Philistia. Are they better off than your two kingdoms? Is their land larger than yours? You put off the evil day and bring near a reign of terror. You lie on beds inlaid with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and fattened calves. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful and you use the finest lotions. But you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, you will be among the first to go into exile. Your feasting and lounging will end. The Sovereign Lord has sworn by Himself, the Lord God Almighty declares, I abhor the pride of Jacob and detest his fortresses. I will deliver up the city and everything in it. If ten men are left in one house, they too will die. And if a relative who is to burn the bodies comes to carry them out of the house and asks, is anyone still hiding here? Is anyone with you? And he asks, he says, no. Then he will say, hush, we must not mention the name of the Lord. For the Lord has given the command and he will smash the great house into pieces and the small house into bits. Do horses run on rocky crags? Does one plow there with oxen? But you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into bitterness. You who rejoice in the conquest of Lodabar and say, did we not take Carnaim by our own strength? For the Lord God Almighty declares, I will stir up a nation against you, O house of Israel, that will oppress you all the way from Labo Hamath to the valley of Arabah. This is the reading of God's Word. Amos is a hard book. There is much condemnation, much judgment that this prophet brings. And in this chapter, it is though he reaches a climax the the ultimate condemnation of the people of Israel as represented by their leaders. He not only prophesies here against Israel, the nation that he was first called to prophesy against, but he includes also Judah, the southern kingdom. For it was at this time that Israel and Judah were separate. After Solomon had died... And his son came to the throne. His son increased the taxes and the burden on the people. And the people of the northern tribes rebelled. And they rose up and they chose their own king. And set him up as opposed to the rightful heir of David. Both kingdoms had various different kings. Many of them forsaking God and forsaking His ways. Choosing rather to involve themselves 
with those pagan practices and religions that surrounded them or that were resonant within their country when God first led them across the Jordan by the hand of Joshua. And so it has been over the years since the time that they had separated that they had followed other gods. Though they presented, as we saw in the first part of this book, the outward manifestation of the religion of the Old Testament, yet Amos calls them to account for the inward destruction that was in their own heart. As we look at this passage, as we look at this, there are three things that we are going to notice from this chapter. Three things that are either explicitly called out or are part of the larger context of what Amos is writing about and what God is doing. First, we will look at the pride of the princes of the people. Then we will look at the retribution of God upon the people. And finally, we will look at the heart of God for His people. Pride is, as I have said both from this pulpit before and other people have said, is not something that is often looked down on, per se, in our culture. At least not explicitly, unless it's really, really bad. And to contrast that, humility is certainly not an attribute that is lauded on a regular basis in our day-to-day lives. But when... When humility does break in, when there is an example of humility, it often grips us and we are caught by it and we see the contrast to the pride that we harbor in our own heart. Here in Amos, the people who lead God's people, the leaders are called out for this pride, for this lack of humility in their own life. And we'll notice that there are four areas that Amos points to where their pride is most notable. As we look at this, we see in the first, the very first verse that the princes of the people had pride in their own preeminence. Amos calls them the notable men of the foremost nation. Now there is As Ray Cortese points out in his sermon, there is a great deal of tongue-in-cheek here in this first verse. Amos knows that he's getting ready to excoriate the leaders, and he wants to point out to them the flagrancy of their pride. The people of Israel were unique. What did they have that other nations didn't have? They had the covenant. God had come and established with them His covenant had called them out as a unique and particular people. But here, the leaders assumed upon that covenant something that was not there. You see, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, Moses, in the context of talking about the covenant that God was establishing with them, he said, it is not because you were great, it's not because you were numerous, it's not because you were the most wonderful people on the face of the planet that God called you. No, it was because you were the least. It's because you were the weakest. It's because you were lowly. And yet here, the, the leaders are assuming their foremost position 
among all nations, as though the reason God chose them was because they were good. When in reality, the reason God chose them and made them preeminent is because He was good. So Amos calls them out and he says, you, you act as though you are the foremost of nations. And indeed, you're the leaders of Israel. The people of Israel were supposed to come to these men and they were supposed to receive wisdom and instruction and judgment in relation to both civil cases as well as other personal matters. And yet here they are using it to feed their own ego instead of to serve the people that God had called them to. Not only do they have pride in their preeminence, but they have pride in their power. God, through Amos, says, go look at all of the other nations, and he lists three of them here. And he says, look, is their kingdom greater than yours? Is their land greater than yours? The reality was, is that it wasn't. The people of Israel were saying, ours is the greatest. The leaders, we are the best. God has blessed us because how good we are. And Amos says, go look at the other nations. Are their lands not just as great? He's saying, your blessing does not come because of how good and great you are. Your pride is leading to your destruction, for unless you recognize God as the one who has given this to you, you're missing it. They had built up cities and fortresses. The king of both the north and the south had built great fortresses and in the years to come they would fight wars and they would gain victory over those around them. And it was merely an outflow of the pride that was already in their heart to think that they had done this on their own. Not only did they have pride in their power, but they had pride in their prosperity. Verse 5, it says, you strum, or excuse me, verse 3 and 4, you put off the evil day and bring near a reign of terror. You lie on beds inlaid with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and fatted calves. The word there, in there, it's, it's, it's for lying on your couches, almost the idea of you, you pour yourself out on your couches. You take your ease. You take your rest. Is there anything wrong with taking your ease and prosperity? No, in and of itself, there's not. But the idea here is, is that we, they were giving themselves over to it. They were making their own pleasure their God. Not only was there pride in their prosperity, but there was pride in their self-righteousness. In verse 6, you drink wine by the bowlful and use the finest lotions. In in Deuteronomy, it speaks of how the leaders, those who held these positions before the contemporaries of Amos, had bowls, but the bowls that they had were bowls of silver that they had brought to the temple as an offering to God. And yet here there is a clear reference to the fact that now they no longer make offerings to their God, but they make offerings to their own belly by drinking bowls full of wine. And they used the finest lotions, the best money could buy, the heat to themselves. But in all of this, in all of this we might say, in moderation these things are not wrong. But there is one final, one final charge that is laid against them that places it all into context. 
that proves their own self-righteousness, and that is this. He says, but you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. In all of these things, you hold yourself preeminent. You take for yourself power. You gain for yourself prosperity. You think yourself right with God when the very thing that you're doing is contrary to what He desires. And what is the cherry on top is that they do not recognize the ruin that is around them. They have become so enamored with themselves. Their pride has become so great. The things that they indulge in has so captivated their attention that they can't see the real problem. They can't see the airplane going down that they're riding because they can't see the ruin of Joseph. What are the things in our own lives that captures our attention that we build up our own pride in? There are many. They are varied in my own life. And thinking through this passage and working through this sermon this week, there are many areas that in my own life I said, oh my, here. Here is where I'm serving myself. Here is where my pride is greatest. And I felt ashamed. You know, I I remember when our kids were young, younger than they are now, uh, we we were attending a, a church in... Chattanooga, Tennessee, and, and we were new parents, and our kids were young, and we didn't know what to do with them in church, but, uh, but there was this kind of this, this movement in the church there, this, this conversation that we had that, that is not wrong, but we took it too far, or I at least took it too far. You see, there was a conversation about whether children should sit in the service or if they should go to a children's church. Now, in some churches, this is actually a pretty big conversation. Not so much here at Memorial, at least not right now, and I hope that this will not, will not turn it into that. But at the church we were attending, you see, the, the thing was, is parents wanted to have their kids in the service with them. Not just in the beginning during the songs, but, but throughout the whole service, through the sermon and everything. Now, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, and there's nothing wrong with sending your child to children's church either. However, at this church, they had built a skybox that was good, and sometimes uh, parents would go up there, particularly with really young children. But as the children got older, and, and, and they could attempt to sit in the church longer, some parents would bring them down into the main uh, seating area uh, of the congregation. And, and as we're going through this as parents, right, as, as I'm encountering this whole new concept, because I never sat through church whenever I was growing up. We always had children's churches. I was encountering this new concept and this understanding that, that as a covenant family, we're part of God's covenant people, and, and our children actually are part of God's people right now, and, and they're part of the church, and this is awesome, and this is great. This, this brings grace to my family, and wow, I really want to live this out. I'm going to have my kids in, my, in, this, in the service with me, and And if you're a parent and you don't, then you just don't get it. Parental pride. As if I know better. As if I am the judge of another man's heart. National pride. You know, America is a unique nation, but every nation is unique. Every nation is different. 
But oftentimes we are caught up in the idea that our nation is somehow the best and greatest nation that has ever existed on the face of this planet. I mean, I would start out by saying, you know, God didn't come down and select George Washington to be in covenant with him and to bring the Messiah through. So I think that uh, likely our nation is not (laughs) the most perfect nation that has ever existed. And unless we think ourselves too great, even the nation of Israel couldn't get it right. Hence, Amos writes in chapter 6. I do not denigrate what God has given us and the blessings of this land, but we should not take the blessings as a sign of our own internal self-righteous perfection. There is uh, an interesting set of statistics that I found in this. You know, to to show to show you a little more how we're all prone, not right, not just. Not just on a national pride thing, not a parental pride thing, but, but this kind of goes to each and every one of us uh, individually. In 1950, the Gallup organization asked high school seniors this question. Are you a very important person? At that point, 12% said, yes, I'm a very important person. In 2008, they asked the same question again. 80% responded, Yes, I am a very important person. Time Magazine asked Americans, are you in the top 1% of earners? And apparently 19% of Americans are in the top 1% of earners. Our hearts are prone to boasting. Our hearts are prone to thinking more of ourselves than we ought. We take pride in things that are not our doing. And we claim for ourselves the credit of having done it. And to make it worse, we look down or we fail to even see those around us who are in ruin. The pride of the princes was great. And Amos here writes then about the retribution of God upon the people. Now the term retribution is not one that we use very often, but the idea is, is that it's an exact reward for a deed that is done. In Amos, there is a lot of judgment, a lot of punishment called out, discipline that seems harsh. And it can seem as though the punishment does not fit the crime. I mean, we all want punishments to fit crimes, right? Even in our own society today, there are times when the punishment that is meted out does not fit the crime for one reason or another. But we all long for it. We all want that to be the case. We want justice. We want equity. Right? My, um, my mother-in-law is a wonderful lady. So if she's listening to this recording right now, she is a wonderful, wonderful, gracious person to me. She let me marry her daughter after all. But this week I was reminded of a story about uh, my mother-in-law's disciplinary actions in her home. And uh, it's actually my wife that tells this story. I've, I've heard it a couple of times, and this week she told it again, and I, I, I thought, oh, how perfect. You see, 
My wife recounts a time when her brother and sister were bickering. They were fighting. They were really going at each other. And, I mean, you know how it is as parents if you have kids, right? There is a certain level at which if, if the fighting and bickering stays below it, it really doesn't enter into your consciousness, right? You're, you you kind of know it's there, but there's like this threshold. And as soon as it just peaks above the threshold, pow! It's like all of a sudden you become aware of it, right? And so my brother and sister-in-law had re- reached that threshold and gone above it. So my mother-in-law took both of them, brought them into their kitchen, and sat them down at the table not side by side, but across from each other so they can look at one another. And this is how she disciplined them. Because they could not get along, because they could not play together nicely, she pulled out two pieces of paper and two pencils and put them in front of her, in front of them, and said, you have to write down ten things that you like about your siblings. I know, talk about cruel and unusual punishment, right? I thought that was outlawed. And then she would make them recite it to one another. Read it out loud to one another. The problem was is that my brother-in-law could only think of three things. And then he summarily asked if he could just go to bed for the night. The beauty of the story is, is is that here, what was going on... It fit, right? Here they couldn't get along. Here they thought one another their enemies, that that they were bickering and fighting because they couldn't get their own way. And and what does my mother-in-law do? But she says, if you're ungrateful, then I am going to force you to be grateful. That's your punishment, to learn to be grateful. It fits. It's like a hand in the glove. It's beautiful. The judgment we see in Amos is not out of accord with the depths of the sin of the leaders. God, in fact, has a shocking judgment on them. His retribution is great, but it is equal to the depths of their sin and the depths of their pride. For he says in verse 7 and 8 that he will bring destruction on their strength. He says, I abhor the pride and the city fortresses that they have built built. He will deliver up the city and everything that is in it. Wipe it away. If they think that their strength is so great, He will remove their strength from them. The death of their prosperity. He says that you take great pride in lounging around on your beds. He said, now if ten men are in one house, all of them will die. And when someone comes to take out the dead bodies, if he finds anyone, he will say, is anybody else with you? And that one will say, hush, hush, we can't speak the name of the Lord. Lest God's attention be drawn to us and we also die. Their lounging, their licentiousness, their own selfish gain, he would turn into the stench of death. You pour costly lotions on yourself. The stench of death will fill your nostrils. He will bring desolation to their city and to their houses. 
to the grand estates, for he says that the Lord has given the command, he will smash the great house into pieces. But listen, he also says, and the small house into bits. While this is a scathing accusation against the leaders of Israel, we know from the rest of the book of Amos and from this context that the people had followed the leaders. They had followed leaders who led them into sin. And God says, not only will I smash the great houses, but I will smash the small houses as well. He will utterly eradicate the sin of His people and bring judgment upon them. That's shocking, unless we understand how deep the sin was of the people. How much they had rebelled against God. And He even gives us an illustration here for Amos, as one who was a worker in the field, a shepherd, gives us this illustration. He says, do horses run on rocky crags? Does one plow there with oxen? No, common sense says, if you take a horse across a whole bunch of rocks, it's likely going to hurt his hoof, right? They didn't have uh, horseshoes and those things back then, so you had to be even more careful. So you don't ride your horse across rocky ground. And you certainly don't try to plow there. You won't be able to grow anything. You'll spend all of your time pulling out the rocks if you don't break your plow. It's just common sense. The course of nature says you don't do those things. And he says, but in the same way as you don't do that, that would be a reversal of nature. You have reversed justice and righteousness into poison and bitterness. You see, they had taken the very heart of God, the very passion that He had for justice and righteousness, and they had completely distorted it until it was this opposite. And then they reveled in their own leisure, thinking that they had done a good thing. God is not an unjust God. He is a God that will bring retribution, He will bring judgment, and He will bring discipline. But lest we think God an ogre, we must understand the larger context of this passage. Amos is not the first book in the Old Testament. He wasn't the first prophet. You see, Israel has a history. And it goes a long way back a man named Abraham, whom God did choose, he did call out, and he said, Abraham, I will give you a land, I will give you descendants, salvation will come to my creation through your offspring. You will be a blessing to the nations around you and to people throughout all the course of human history. You see, if we see only the judgment here, if we see only the retribution, if we miss the fact that God had already come to them in His great goodness and in His great kindness, then we will think God unjust. But once we understand the heart of God for His people, our own thinking and our own motivation is changed. So you see, the purpose of God's people was to be a blessing, a testimony to those around them. The reason why God had blessed them throughout history 
was again not because of their own goodness, but because He was displaying His goodness among the nations. That people would look upon Israel and they would say, what kind of God do they have who is so great and who is so good? Who would bless His people and who would bring redemption? Who would give them a law so just and so right? Who would come to them to redeem them? through the blood of sacrifice. There is a purpose in the heart of God. And it's not a purpose first for judgment. But judgment does come. But God's purpose for His judgment is the same thing that Keith preached about last week. It is a call to come back home. Even in His judgment... We will see later in Amos, and then we see through the course of history, that God's purpose in judgment was not to eradicate completely the nation of Israel. It was to break the heart of His people for what His heart beat for. It was to do them a service, a good, to call out their pride that was keeping them from experiencing the greatest blessings He has yet to pour out upon them. It truly was loving discipline to bring them back to Himself. So often we are caught up, though, with our own success that we fail to remember that God has said that He opposes the proud but brings Grace to the humble. He stands against the proud, even to the point of judgment. But those who humble themselves, those are the ones He will lift up. Who understand their own brokenness, even in the midst of what prosperity He may have given to them, they understand their own brokenness. That that what God has given to them is not theirs, but it is His, and it is meant to be used in His service. In our culture, we, we, we put forward our own successes in many ways. We put out our resumes that have all of the things that we have done, all the ways in which we have succeeded in our life. But rarely, if ever, are we humble enough to call out the ways in which we have not succeeded, the ways in which we are broken, the ways in which we didn't make it. Johann Haushofer, a Princeton professor, wrote a resume of failure and posted it online. Here is a very successful man, professor at Princeton, a very prestigious school, And he wrote a resume of failure that included sections like this. Degree programs I did not get into. Research funding I didn't get. Paper rejections from academic journals. He writes this, projecting only success and never recognizing failure has damaging effects. So he decided to do something about it. He says, people are more likely to attribute their own failures to themselves rather than the fact that the world is chaotic, applications are crapshoots, and selection committees and referees have bad days. 
However, this resume of failure is an attempt to balance the record and provide some perspective, he said. But here's what Hoffer called his meta-failure. He says on his resume, this darn resume of failures, he wrote, has received way more attention than my entire body of academic work. Even in his humility, (laughs) he garnered more recognition than his whole body of work. That is not to correlate that action and reaction to say that that is how God is going to work, but it does show that when we humble ourselves, God will lift us up. But in all this, let us recognize this. God's purpose for His goodness. He had been so great and so good to the nation of Israel, and it was only as a last resort, only when they failed to respond to His goodness, did He turn towards judgment, did He turn towards discipline. God has always turned to us first in goodness and kindness and in grace and mercy. But if we fail, then He will turn to judgment. So let us then respond first to His goodness. Our reflection today was the chorus from a song by a Christian hip-hop artist named Flame. His real name is Marcus Gray. He was born and raised in St. Louis. And he wrote a song, Goodness to Repentance. You have the chorus in your reflection along with the Scripture passage, Romans 2-4, from which it's drawn. But listen to the words of this last verse. And, and Flame, Flame here writes, speaking into the hip-hop culture of today, but the principles and the spiritual aspect of it is directly applicable across all cultures, whether it's a hip-hop culture, or whether it's a memorial Presbyterian culture, or whether it's the culture of the church at large. I will attempt to read this. I recognize that I do not have rhythm. I am a white guy from the South. Bear with me. Listen, what does it take to make a man turn when God has offered the opposite of everything that man's earned? You see, God holds every breath of every lung that's in every chest until it's time to be buried next. His goodness should make us throw up our white flags considering the fact that our soul has a price tag that only God could pay the whole with His life. Then He rose while we roll in a nice jag. Man, see every smile that you crack, every dollar that you make dirty. God allowed that. All the times you should have said, man, that should have been me. It could have been me laying six feet deep. All the chances that you had. Man, you should have been stopped when them cops stopped you, locked you up in them handcuffs. But now you're scot-free and refusing to live godly. Though you want the benefits of being God's seed. And the chorus goes, God's goodness should lead men to repentance. It should make you want to change. Do you show contempt for the riches of His kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Repentance. It's not our work. Even in that, we have not the ability. 
But Christ came and humbled Himself, was born in a lowly manger, was born poor and weak, that He might, through His death on the cross, give us the strength of His Spirit and the forgiveness won for us in His death and resurrection. Let us not wait for the judgment of God. Let us respond to His goodness and His graciousness. Let us seek the good of others so that they they too might know the glory of salvation and redemption, the renewal of their own heart in Christ Jesus. For it is to Him that we look. Let us pray. Father, we are a people filled with pride, yet You are a God who is filled with humility. We always want to lift up ourselves, to revel in what we think is our own accomplishment, and yet, Lord, You have laid waste to it. You have proved to us that it is not sufficient to bring us salvation. And so You humbled Yourself, and You did it for us. Let us, Lord, respond to You. Move us by Your Spirit to worship and to serve You, our God. For it is in Your Son's name we pray. Amen.